This is Civil War Talk Radio. If you ask a Civil War soldier when you get to the great beyond to name the regiment, I'm sorry, name the unit he served in, nine out of ten times he'll tell you his regiment, not brigade, division, corps, or any other unit. The regiment held a special hold on the individual. That's reflected in the outpouring of regimental histories after the Civil War and in a new wave of regimental histories here in the 21st century. Today we'll talk to the author of Harvard's Civil War, a history of the 20th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry, Richard F. Miller. Join us and Richard F. Miller on Civil War Talk Radio. Do you like to save money? Let me tell you about a website, Target Barter. Instead of buying things for cash, you trade things you have for things you want. It's as close as you can come to getting something for free. Target Barter has dozens of categories, thousands of things. Jewelry, beauty products, perfume, electronics, computers, and much more. Why pay cash for something you want when you can probably find it on Target Barter? But it's not buying, it's Target Barter trading. List things you have to trade and earn Target dollars. Use your Target dollars to trade for things you want. It's easy, it's fun, and it's not expensive. Before my family spends cash on anything, we check Target Barter. Target Barter is not an auction. You don't bid against anybody. You see it, you like it, you click on it, you buy it. But not for cash. For Target Barter trade dollars. Go to the website. They walk you through the entire process. So what are you waiting for? It's free to join. TargetBarter.com gets the things you want without spending cash. That's TargetBarter.com. If you want to live a healthier lifestyle naturally, visit wellnow.ca, an all-Canadian quality resource. We provide the information and knowledge you need to make your best choices. Wellnow.ca gives you access to natural products and solutions, lifestyle services, and licensed health practitioners. Our free monthly newsletter delivers healthy living tips, articles, and expert opinions. Become empowered. Go to wellnow.ca today. Mission Critical. Two words that describe the data vital to every e-commerce website. If your company needs the services of an unparalleled co-location facility, you need to remember these two words, Castle Access. With Castle Access, your Internet servers will be secure in environmentally controlled data centers that offer high-speed managed Internet access and the highest standards of 24-7 customer support. For more info, visit castleaccess.com. Castle Access. We keep you online all the time. Have a question or comment? To speak to our show hosts or guests during the live show, call in toll-free in North America, 877-514-7300. And from elsewhere in the world, call 001-858-277-1444. Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from my office in Greenville, North Carolina, on the campus of East Carolina University, but in no way representing the university or anything that it stands for. It's my show. First, I would like to thank those of you who have chipped in a little bit to help keep the show going. Uh, There is a button on the website where you can 
donate. I've tried to thank those of you who have done so, and some of my messages have been spam filtered out by your vigilant protection. So if you don't hear back, it may be that I was unable to get through, but doing my best to do that. Today, we're going to talk with Richard F. Miller, author of Harvard's Civil War, A History of the 20th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry. Richard, are you there? I am, and good afternoon to you and your listeners. Well, thanks for joining us today. Uh, do you go by Richard, uh, Rick, Bill, Jim, any any nickname I should use? Uh, is Richard okay? Well, yeah, that works for a family program. All right, we'll stay with that then. Um, well, I'm very glad you could be here and, and glad we can talk about this fascinating book, Harvard's Civil War. One purely selfish reason is because it allows me to return to a tradition on Civil War talk radio. When the show began, uh, I've made it a point to make sure the listeners knew in every single program that I had a Harvard Ph.D. It was, <laughs> I spent a lot of money on it, and I thought I might as well get something back for it. Yes. So finally, I can once again resurrect the Harvard connection, and we can, we can talk Harvard uh, for the next 55 minutes. You, uh, you were a student at Harvard also, is that right? Yes, I was at the college. I graduated in 1974. So you would not have been in any of the classes that I dominated as a immature graduate student and lorded over. I, I, I showed up after that time. Um, although I did actually know people there roughly around that time. Well, we'll reminisce another day. The, um, uh, the This connection and your connection with Harvard must be uh, in part behind your interest in the 20th Massachusetts uh, nicknamed the Harvard Regiment. Yes, very much so. Uh, the book, in fact, had its origins uh, one afternoon, actually one morning, uh, while I was walking through Harvard Yard on my way to Memorial Hall uh, to take the LSATs for law school. And I passed Massachusetts Hall, which is the office of the president of Harvard University. And that morning, as had been the case for many months, there was a demonstration uh, protesting, at that time, Harvard's ownership of shares of Gulf oil, uh, which then had investments in Portuguese Angola. And I sort of walked by the demonstration, took my seat in Memorial Hall, and during the many, many moments of uh, awkward, I don't know what to say on the exam, I looked around, and for the first time in years, because I'd taken many a meal in Memorial Hall, I noticed that the walls uh, were covered with portraits, oils, of uh, men, actually boys, uh, who were my age, also Harvard graduates. Uh, I'd seen them, but I hadn't paid any attention to them. And I, with the sounds of the demonstration still ringing in my ears, I sort of began to wonder what made that generation that fought the Civil War different uh, from the generation that... Uh, I am a part of that has been considerably less reluctant to support uh, its government uh, in uh, conflict. Now, the Memorial Hall, I, I remember well, uh, as well, they were no longer using it as a food service area uh, by the time I was there in the 80s. But I do remember going into the room, not the large room with the portraits, but the one next to it, a, a cool remember it being always cool and somewhat dark, with the blocks of stone. Yes, the transept. The transept, thank you. And all around it, uh, above head level, are these blocks of stone, each engraved with the name of a Harvard uh, soldier who died in the Civil War. Yes. 
that is a remarkable place. Some of the names are familiar. All our listeners will, will recognize uh, names like, like Robert Gould Shaw, for example. But there are others who are known only to the, possibly to their families, uh, not nearly as well known. But the number of them is remarkable, considering the size of the school at the time. Uh, the, the outpouring of uh, spirit that, that uh, led to those boys to volunteer really is a remarkable thing. I always found it a moving experience to go in there and look around. Let me pick up, though, on you. you since we're talking the 20th century, you, you referenced a demonstration uh, dealing with contemporary politics. In the 1980s, there was a controversy over Memorial Hall in which some people thought it was appropriate to add to the transept additional blocks with the names of Harvard students who had died in the Civil War fighting for the Confederacy, of which That's there right. were a few. And uh, let me ask your position, and, and uh, let's talk about this. What, ought they to do that? Well, that, that's an excellent question. Uh, you know, when Samuel Eliot Morrison, uh, the great Harvard historian, uh, wrote his history of Harvard in the 1930s, uh, he estimated that there were 257 uh, Harvard-connected Confederates uh, who had served during the war. But I would like to give you a quote, if I might, yes. which you may find of some interest. And this was written in May of 1861, and I promise not to be uh, too wordy here, but the editor of Harvard Magazine, which was a student publication, essentially wrote that, quote, uh, we have just learned that 10 of our classmates uh, have left to join the secessionists. We forbear to publish their names out of fear that at some future day, a scholar wandering in the library shall repose among the bound volumes of this magazine and discover these names upon our, what he called, roll of dishonor, end quote. And that seemed to set the tone for the next several centuries. And my sense of it is, frankly, that the original intent of Memorial Hall was to honor uh, men, some boys, who essentially had given their lives for the Union. And believe it or not, it may be too soon to add uh, the names of Confederates. It may also be, given the politically correct sensitivities that dominate the university, it may be too late. Well, it's an interesting, interesting perspective. This won't make for good talk radio because I have to say I agree with you and with that 1861 author. In the 80s, when the controversy was was bubbling, uh, there were voices on campus who thought it was time to add the, the secessionists' names. Uh, I was working with uh, David Donald, the, the Lincoln scholar. Uh, Absolutely. You remember him, a professor there. Certainly do. Um, he was my advisor. Uh, I looked up to him in, and still do in, in every way. And he thought it was appropriate, it was time to, to put this behind us, that it, there was a, a fitting, that it was fitting to add these uh, names of the Confederate Harvard people. And that was one of the few issues that he and I disagreed 180 degrees on. My thought is similar to what you just said, that Memorial Hall is not uh, simply a random uh, 
place to recognize people from the past. It is a memorial hall for a specific memory, a, a memory of a specific cause, not just those who fought bravely for whatever side, but for those who fought for the cause of the Union. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, you can argue whether judges and so forth should take into account original intent when it comes to the Constitution. But I think when it comes to memorials, and think again, for example, we are, at least I am old enough to have uh, buried a parent and other relatives, uh, had someone, if someone would, would approach me and say, look, I'd like to add this to the gravesite, uh, clearly my sensibility would be informed by what would the deceased have wanted, what would they have cared about. And I don't think it's out of place to take that into account here. And and as your your quote shows, the the boys of '61 would have been uh, unanimously opposed to the idea of putting their enemies in the same memorial hall. But that I think so. But I also think it's important to uh, develop a, a, a nuanced understanding of the relationship between these Harvard men and uh, their peers in the South, because up until the 1850s, uh, Harvard. I think, reached a uh, southern uh, attendance of about 25%. And it was only when the uh, sectional controversy began to heat that southerners began sending uh, their kids further south, Yale, Princeton, and in some cases keeping them within the south proper uh, for secondary education. These Harvard men uh, had very good personal and social relations uh, with their college peers who happened to be from the south. And that continued throughout the war. But in a different age, they were able to bifurcate how they felt about someone individually versus how they regarded their politics, their loyalties, and even their character uh, for walking away from what they felt was the trust to the federal government. And that, that <clears throat> nuance is a good word there because it really is a complex situation to look at the uh, there's a scene in that that great school novel uh, goodbye mr chips in which the english uh, headmaster at the boys school in england 1915 is reading the list of alumni from his school who have died on the western front and he reads the name of a former german tutor yes and the boys all wonder which side was he fighting on was he not fighting for the our, our country's enemy but for Mr. Chips, loyalty to the school, he, he's still one of his boys. Loyalty to the school comes first. I remember and that scene. It was very affecting. It's very affecting. Yet, and, and that, so it's not a loyalty to be denigrated, to be ignored, but one might transpose it a war further. Suppose the German boy had died fighting for Adolf Hitler. Would we feel the same way as we might about a more apolitical war like World War I? Uh, now we go back to the Civil War, our subject today. And if one believes that there were great moral and political issues at stake, and it's not just a, a giant uh, a football game with muskets, then then taking the these moral and political issues seriously as as the people involved did becomes more of a responsibility. Right, and I think I would also introduce I think one other uh, element of nuance, which is. Uh, there has been an ongoing scholarly debate whether the Civil War was the first total war, uh, how modern, how pre-modern was it. Mm -hmm. Certainly one of the ways to look at that question is to decide that it was still a time when men and women could separate the personal from the political, 
one was in fact able to wage war uh, with uh, modern ferocity, but as is well known and frequently commented upon in the lacuna between battles, uh, officers and more often in the ranks uh, had very little problem uh, meeting one another between lines and exchanging everything from newspapers and tobacco. Uh, one could hardly imagine, and having been to Iraq uh, on embeds, uh, one could not imagine uh, that situation going today, say, in Fallujah uh, between uh, the United States Marines and the insurgents. No, the, the, it's an entirely different situation, certainly. Correct. We've, we've discussed that on, on this show. We've talked about the parole system, the idea of, of letting your captured foe go based on his word of honor not to fight, uh, and, and, and then honoring that word and not fighting until you're exchanged. Right. The Civil War soldiers had no problem doing that. Uh, a Marine who had told his sergeant, hey, I can't fight, I gave my word not to, to fight when I was captured, uh, would not fare well. Uh, and we wouldn't expect them to do that. Yeah. Now, you, uh, you, what were you doing in Iraq? You mentioned, uh, were, you, were you as a military or civilian personnel? No, I was a journalist uh, embedded with uh, uh, the 3-8 Marines. In fact, they were out of North Carolina, out of uh, Camp Lejeune with mm -hmm. the 2nd MEF. Uh, this was last March for several weeks. And you also said you uh, went to law school Yes. So, so tell, tell us a little bit about what uh, your career outside of writing about uh, the Civil War. I, I graduated from college, and as I mentioned, in 1974. I returned to Cleveland, Ohio, which is where I'm from. Uh, graduated from law school in 1977, but never practiced. Uh, went into the investment area and spent the next 25 years uh, sort of split between investments and uh, Civil War research and writing. Uh, was able to finally get out some publications in the mid-1990s and in 2000 uh, made it in uh, a vocation uh, versus an avocation. And that brings us then to the <clears throat> the writing of, of this book, Harvard's Civil War, which uh, I, I normally would have jumped right in, but I think these issues are worth exploring a little, and, and uh, I, I'm glad we got to talk about that. The 20th Massachusetts is the Harvard Regiment in in its nickname in part because it well because it has in part uh, men from Harvard, but Harvard did not make up the whole of the regiment. Who who was who made up the 20th Massachusetts? Well, that actually is the best question of them all. Fifty uh, percent, or to be very precise, uh, just over 49.1 percent of the enlisted personnel, including NCOs, were in fact foreign-born. There were two companies that were virtually entirely German, uh, as they were known at the time, Achtunwertzeigers, 48ers, uh, men who had fought or had been persecuted uh, during the democratic revolts in what is today Germany uh, during the 1948 revolution, uh, sorry, 1848 revolution. Uh, several companies were largely but not entirely uh, Irish. The rest of the companies were drawn from uh, several discrete localities, uh, the most important of one which would be Nantucket, uh, Cape Cod, and Martha's Vineyard. And these, these are islands, other than the Cape, Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard are islands dominated by the whaling industry in the early 19th century. 
That's right. And by the mid-19th century, uh, whale oil had been replaced by petroleum from Pennsylvania. So the islands were, in fact, uh, destitute. And young men uh, volunteered uh, in droves from Nantucket, uh, recruited by a former Nantucketer who had years before gone to Boston and made his fortune on State Street, returned in 1861 and recruited the first batch of Nantucketers for the island, uh, for the uh, regiment, rather. The officers uh, were about two-thirds Harvard men on the initial roster. Of course, after the first battle, those percentages began to shift uh, by attrition. When I say Harvard men, and it's important to recognize this, uh, that not only includes graduates from Harvard College, but also those who attended Harvard Medical School, Harvard Law School, uh, and the Divinity School. Now, this is a remarkable mix that we have in this regiment as it forms then, because the Harvard men in general, not exclusively, but in general are going to come from the higher socioeconomic levels of Massachusetts society. And then you've got these Nantucket whalemen. You have, as you said, German and Irish immigrants. And you've still got the hangover from the know-nothing era in Massachusetts, do you not? An important hangover important because, uh, contrary to Harvard as it is today, Harvard in 1860 was a very conservative institution. The bulk of the Harvard men recruited, with only perhaps three exceptions, were uh, Democrats, large D, vehemently anti-abolitionist, and for the most part, very much anti-Lincoln. The Aktuvertzeigers, the Germans, were... Uh, very much Republican, large R, very supportive of Lincoln. They were free thinkers, several atheists, uh, probably several communists, uh, at least in its early incarnation. And this was one heck of a mix. In Massachusetts was in the in the brief heyday of the Know Nothings around 1854, 55. Massachusetts is one of the, the strongest know-nothing states, and the, the yeah. know-nothing platform is basically anti-immigration. So, so you've got a regiment forming here where the, the officers, uh, you see many are Democrats, and know-nothings are, are extinct as a party by 1860, but many of them certainly would have had know-nothing leanings, and yet they're officering men from Germany, the German states, and Ireland. Yes. Well... We're going to take a break here. We've, we've set the stage now. We've populated the 20th Massachusetts. And when we come back with Richard F. Miller, author of Harvard Civil War, we'll find out how this regiment fared in its first battle. Join us when we return on Civil War Talk Radio.